I'm the Property Funder, better known as Michael Dean, and this is the Property Funder podcast. I'm a successful entrepreneur, investor, NED and advisor. As co-founder of Avermore Capital, I'm best known for having financed over a billion pounds of property developments and investments by value during my career so far. During my time in business, I've come across an incredibly broad spectrum of successful people all with their own unique experiences working in a variety of industries. I want to speak to these people and learn more about them. I'm not looking to have the world's biggest podcast, so if just one person benefits from what my guests have to say, then that to me would look like success. And if you are that one person, then you should probably not tell anyone about this. Welcome to the Property Funder podcast. Um, before we start talking to today's guest, Jerome, uh, I'd just like to remind you that if you're listening on Apple, Spotify or YouTube, please make sure that you are subscribed to the channel and that if you're able to give us a rating, you can give us a five star rating. That would mean the world to me. And that means that our listeners will have more access to exciting and enlightening guests like Jerome in the future. Anyway, without further ado, Jerome, would you like to introduce yourself, give us your full name and and talk about what you do for a living? Sure. Thanks, Michael. Um, So I'm uh, Jerome Royce. Um, I wear two hats. I've got a property development training company and I've got a land trading and development company. Sensitive Developments is the land and development vehicle and property planning again is the digital platform that provides content and property development training in person to the next generation of property developers. Okay, brilliant, Jerome. Now, um, let, let's talk about the the training side of things because that's quite quite an interesting hot button topic. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of the property training courses that get offered uh, have quite a bad name um what what inspires you to get into the training side of property and how how is how is what you offer different to the you know some of the sort of quote unquote charlatans that you know that, that offer money for old you know it's money for old rope type development courses okay so the the main reason for getting into it is what you've already said is to make right the injustices of the training sector in this country and during uh, covid myself and my wife phoned up every training company in england and tried to establish what's offered how they do it and what their usp is And what we learnt was quite revealing. The majority of the trainers, not saying all of them, there are some reputable organisations out there, 
were run by people that lacked the necessary experience to guide someone through a very challenging industry. The second point is because tra training didn't exist when I was starting out, um, there, and there wasn't YouTube, there weren't property books, and I didn't have the benefit of being able to pay someone to train me. And to bring through the younger generation to stop them making mistakes that I made, those are the two driving forces. Okay. Um, and let's let's go back to the start of your your property journey. You know, at what age? Did, you know, I mean, talk us through. So when you when you left school, what you know, what was your career path, and how did you end up in the property sector? So when, uh, when I left school, I wanted to be a journalist, a sports journalist, football writer or cricket writer. Never had the opportunity because of circumstances outside of my control. And um, ended up going to college to do a two year BTEC in uh, catering and hotel management in London. Didn't really want to go into hospitality, stayed in it for a couple of years, served the Queen Mother. Maggie Thatcher, that, that sort of level of person and got a job as a tea boy and a photocopier office junior in a firm of estate agents on uh, Park Road in Regent's Park called Wise Properties, going way back to the uh, early 90s. Wouldn't say I was bitten by the bug, enjoyed it. I was working with men that people that were a lot older a lot more experienced than me and things just flowed from there left there set up my own residential estate agency Carrington and Co in 1997 just off Baker Street before every high street had multiple estate agents on them when you could rent a shop from for a 20 grand a year and where business rates were affordable and you could charge two, two and a half percent commission. Um, took on a business partner. Someone approached me to buy half the business. I, I kind of like to politely say to myself, I didn't really know what I was doing back then. I was in my 20s. I didn't have a plan, didn't have a mentor. I didn't have any guidance. Didn't really understand how to na uh, navigate an Excel spreadsheet. And didn't really understand what a cash flow was. I think that's commonly known as winging it, mm. which I think, which I think in some way all of us still are. We just become better at it as we get older and more experienced. Yeah, I hear that. Um, sold my shares back to my partner at the all-time high in 06. Got a commercial consult commercial property consultancy gig in the city with a firm of chartered surveyors. So we're talking 06, 07, and a bit of 08. City mm. Fringe, Shoreditch, uh, Hoxton, that market, very hot, all time high, probably never be repeated. And came into work the weekend or the week after Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns went and was told that my role was no longer uh, there. My role was redundant, uh, just had my second child. We were about to move house 
And that was maybe a bit like people had during COVID. It was one of those moments where one reflects on your life and where you're really going and what you want to do. Do you want to be dependent on other people for your paycheck? Or do you want to be in control of your own destiny? And um, I took a year out, didn't know where I was going. It was very difficult to get funding. Managed to scrape together a few quid from some mates, bought some unmodernized studios and one bedroom flats in Haringey, Manor House, Finsbury Park, that neck of the woods, Arsenal territory, Michael. And um, traded them on, new kitchen, new bathroom, new flooring. Did okay, didn't set the world alight. And then things started to change in uh, 2013. Uh, going through a lot of personal issues at home was um, getting divorced. Made a decision to take my kids with me to my next stop on my property journey, which was to move up to Edinburgh and work in private equity for a structured property fund, where we had identified the office to resi PD market because it began in 2013. Even though now it feels like everyone's got a commercial to resi deal, right? Mm kind of question whether there's any money left in it but that's up to them right so the, the so 2013 you, you know pdr was just in its infancy obviously it's an area where where i've made or i've made a little bit of cash as well so so talk us through what what happened next so um moved to scotland had my kids with me and worked with people that understood how to scale a business, which I think is the biggest challenge facing property developers, actually. It's the cash flow and learning how to scale it. How do you hit critical mass? What do you have to do to get there? And we were fortunate enough because it was right at the beginning. So we're talking May 2013, but starting to get busy in early 2013 because of speaking to the planning consultants who had originally consulted with the government on the change of legislation. Picked up some buildings in Southeast England, Kent, and um, pioneered um, social housing delivery in Office Teresi. I feel at that time, I don't think there was anyone else doing it, certainly not in those areas, because housing associations were traditionally, they're basically new build developers, that's what they are. Mm. They, they, they will pick up the 106, they'll take the affordable within a apartment block. That's been their model. Uh, we identified not just the PD model, but the de-risk housing association forward sale model for affordable rent cash flow rather than huge margins because let's explain to people what de-risking is it's minimizing your profit but generating more certainty yeah and 
it was possible to scale permitted development back then because there were no limits on the size of buildings you could do. Yeah, correct. Which, of course, it is now. So effectively, everything that was vacant post 08 that was in a reasonable location, that was the window. Mm. The window was then, it was a three-year window. It was a three-year tester until they brought it in properly post 2016 that's correct yeah um probably 150 units in about 18 months across three schemes acting as developer contractor fingers burnt on stuff like asbestos it's a bit like the wild west all those buildings were riddled with it from that era it was certainly from sort of what 60s 70s early 80s that sort yeah. of that sort of era yeah. right didn't really know what i was looking at the people that operate in the asbestos game are the people that operate in demolition yeah so so 18 months 150 units you know you you, you got your social housing model so so then what what was the next step uh the next step was that i met a woman that i fell in love with who lived in Manchester and that shaped what I was going to do next and where I was going to be. She basically said to me after traveling up and down all the time, um, she just asked me how serious I was because it's not just about business. There's, it's also about relationships and life, right? Mm. And uh, it was at that point I decided to go it alone because doing the Office Therese PDR made me understand what buying without planning meant. Mm. And yeah, whilst PD is great for getting money out and refinancing and getting from A to B quickly and you know you'll get PD because it ticks the criteria and it's not in an Article 4, there's a much bigger market out there for planning game. And that's what I wanted to explore, which was basically land um, unconditionally at first in southeast England and northwest England, which is where I was now living with my kids, my new partner and her kids. There were six of us and took some investors on. And it's just really mushroom from there. It's um, it's expensive. It's time consuming. It's getting harder. But it's the principle of not paying someone else their margin for getting planning, isn't it, really? But do you want to do you want to um, just explain to our listeners who are maybe less sophisticated what unconditional means um, in the context of in, in the context of land and what the alternative ways that you could try and acquire a site particularly for residential development or are there any type so, of development sure um our, uh, the definition of unconditional is that you enter into a contract which has no conditions to it it typically means that you're using your own cash funds and equity you may be able to borrow money from bridging funders to bridge the gap if you're buying without planning the loan to value on an unconditional purchase 
is lower than something that has planning because the funder wants to have certainty and to minimize their risk. Effectively, you've got to be really certain if you're buying without planning unconditionally that you're going to get planning. If it's an existing building, you've probably got a plan B. If it's a piece of land, which is what we do, let's call it a field. Let's call it a brownfield site. If there's nothing on it, there really isn't a plan B. You're all in on the day that you buy it. And then the other structure is a conditional contract or option. Reasonably similar, some slightly different nuances in each of them, but effectively, it gives you the ability to secure a site on a conditional basis with a lower deposit and lower upfront exposure subject to gaining a satisfactory planning permission. Okay, um, so so to date, um, so since you, you've got it alone, um, have all of your deals been unconditional or have you done any conditional deals as well? So the majority of deals now are conditional. The model has changed. And, and how, how, easy, how easy are you finding it to secure conditional sites? Sorry to interrupt. Um, we're not the only people trying to do it. It's highly competitive, but I believe that we have a model that enables us to pay a premium. And it's getting the landowner invested in the uplift, but waiting for it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and you know, without revealing trade secrets, it, what what are those key? What what are, you know? Can you give an example of one of those? One of the things that might uh, set you apart from from some of your competitors. I mean, as as someone who's active also in a similar space. Uh, I, I'm curious how curi curious to understand um, how you're able to be so persuasive for a landowner where they might 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 otherwise not be willing to to take the risk uh, on a conditional deal, for example, and would rather just take the take take the burden in the hand, as it were. So it could be a site where they're already generating income on a short term basis and they're getting older and they don't want to asset manage the asset. It could be putting a larger non-refundable deposit down on exchange of the conditional contract and allowing it to be released. And money talks, doesn't it? It's about mm. paying a bit more than what you believe someone else might be paying. Mm. People in the industry know you make your money when you buy and not when you sell. So what you're paying is important, but that's when your track record comes into it as well. When you're able to speak to a landowner and goes, well, look, in Essex, in those local authorities, we've got this on the go. We've done that. We've done this. And the track record comes with experience. But those are the typical angles that lots of people have. Yeah. It's true. It's true. And, and in terms of your, in terms of you know your successes today, I mean, how, since you've gone it alone, how many how many units have you been have you successfully got planning for? 
Um, well, there's been 12 successful planning consents out of 12. Some have gone to appeal. And that's circa 250 units. And and that since and that since when when did you so when did you actually get started on that? That's that's seven years. Over seven years. Okay, so the on average about one and a half a year essentially, or nearly two a year. Uh, that's yeah. that's pre, that's pretty good going. Um, and and in, have you built those sites out, or have you sold some of them on to to developers, or you know to like other house builders? Um, the majority have been traded on to other developers. Um, I've built stuff out, um, done some new build development. So now looking at the appetite to build stuff out in this market, looking at that very closely, I think the advantage of buying without planning and taking the planning risk, it gives you flexibility on your strategy. Yeah. Uh, do you uh, do you think also that that it's also attractive for landowners that you that you have built out as well? You know, does does that give you an advantage when when acquiring? Um, I don't think it does because when they say to me, "What are you going to do with it?" I have to be quite polite and say, "It's none of your business. We're just going to get your planning permission." <laughs> Okay, and is is that because when you're typically having these conversations with them, that you're you're talking to them on an off market basis, or are you finding that you're you're in competition with other people? So we will only really look at off market stuff unless the agent that offers us something is guaranteed to deliver it for us. Mm-hmm. You know, life's too short, time goes too quickly. We don't do best bids. We don't do informal offers. We don't do tenders. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the business I'm involved with invariably doesn't really like getting involved in these best bid scenarios because typically the the, the agents already know who they're going to sell it to, uh, and they they just create a bit of a beauty parade just to force the the price up from the most likely bidder. Uh, that's that's certainly my experience. I mean, in terms of in terms of sourcing the sites, I mean, what's the what's your method of sourcing at the moment? Are you is it sort of mass mail outs to 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 landowners? You know, using your land insight and working out you know what what looks interesting, or you know, is 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 it sort of that, or are there any other particular ways that that you're that you're going about it? So direct to vendor, as it's known as, is has been the number one strategy for a while it's a numbers game i kind of compare it to what foxes were doing in a state agency when they first started if you throw enough mud against the wall some of it will stick and 200 letters a month whole of england county by county targeted for our model these are the size sites, those are the GDVs, those are the site constraints we won't look at, um, reasonably well-worded letter, a website with a track record to back it up. Um, yeah, because when we're, okay, in terms of what we've got on the go now, got five, five sites actively on the go, in legals, or exchanged, or in planning, or in pre-planning, mm. right? And only one's through an agent. 
Yeah, that that's quite telling, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and and I guess to get to that, uh, to, you know, with if you've got five sites in legals or you know or, or about to exchange, you, you've it's going to be difficult to do that all of yourself. Have you have you built a, a team around you now to to help you with that? Yeah. So. Um... Yeah, I, I guess this is now potentially moving into the genre of having the right people around you and the challenge of getting the right people around you. Mm. So everything is externally outsourced, all of it. So you don't do you have do you have any employees? Do you have an assistant? Yeah. Do you have, yeah, do, you have I, a t- do you have an internal team as well as an external team, or is it predominantly external? So until last week, I had a land director, um, not looking to recruit one for the foreseeable. Got someone else that runs the digital marketing side of things for both companies. I have co-directors that are much more experienced than me and older than me and see things differently to me. They're in their 60s and 70s. I'm now in my 50s. And I have a team of people from architects to designers who I'm able to build relationships with and look at fee structures in a more creative way. So they get a bit more. Uh, they they get a bit more of the juice on the back end when you get when the planning's successful, effectively. Yeah, because you know during COVID, I was able to pick the phone up to CEOs of nationwide practices and go, "Hey, this whole model of that you get paid everything before we get planning and we don't earn a penny is wrong. We need to talk about that mm. because that's basically the model, isn't it, for them." Mm. So there's an opportunity for them to be a bit more entrepreneurial and 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 get a bit of a, a bigger cut at the back end. You mentioned your co-directors. You, are your co-directors operationally involved in the business, or are they more sort of, you know, sort of more I wouldn't say silent partners, but more you know more advisory, more non-executive in, in their in their in their scope. Um, I would say they're all, or the two of them are hands-on. They're operational. For me, operational means I can pick the phone up to them anytime and ask them a question. Sure, but it's but they're not the ones going out hunting the sites, hunting for sites, and uh, you know uh, that kind of thing. Are, are they more sort of in the background, there to advise you? Maybe you know can help raise a bit of cash for you if you need it. Um, is that is that a fair assessment, or or are they or or is that underplaying their role a bit? Um. In terms of the day-to-day grunt of it, that's me. Um, in terms of how they assist me, I think it's potentially underplaying it a bit. They're definitely not silent. Um, but yeah, so it's a bit of both probably. Um, and, and, you know, where, what would you say up to, up to now, what would you say your biggest challenge has been in in growing and scaling the business? It's finding the right people. Um, so I'm based in Northwest England, right? Mm-hmm. But yet, yet, Sensitive Developments operates nationwide. So when I look at the pipeline now, apart from trying to offload the last remaining pieces of a strategic site up here, 
everything's within an hour of London. So the biggest challenge I'm finding is access to the right hires. The labour market here is different to London. That is the biggest challenge. Um, don't know what it's like for you down there, whether there's any difference, but that that is the challenge. As, as in it has, as it has been a, is it because there's a, a tight labour market or is it because you struggle to find people with the right skills and experience? I think it's both the skill sets. It's I think it's finding acceptance that that we're not going to find someone like us, which is probably a good thing because every business needs to have a mix of people. It's. I mean, I do think as we, you know, post COVID, I do believe things have changed. Mm -hmm. I do believe that the attitude of potential employees and what they want to take and what they want has changed i think it's flipped on its head i don't think there's much gratitude out there you in the sense of you think that people who there's a sense of entitlement amongst people who are who are working would you say or is that there's a lack of ambition a lack of desire to go out and actually, you know, go and earn a crust. Um, I so so what I've done quite successfully on the digital side of the business, I've been employing individuals from a completely different culture to us, mm -hmm. um, in Indian, okay, mm -hmm. aged between twenty and twenty-three might be doing a master's at Salford or Manchester University, that mm -hmm. sort of ilk. And, you know, it's kind of, this isn't a forum to get involved in politics and entitlement and laziness and attitude, but it's something I feel very strongly about. I have compared a culture with our culture have direct statistical facts on people that have worked in the business from both cultures at different times in the last three years and what I see also with potentially with my own kids to a smaller degree is the self of entitlement is completely different I mean in India they don't throw away food for example Okay. Says it all, really. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I understand that. I, I think that there's 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 definitely been a shift in attitudes to work. I think if I'm speaking from an Avonmore perspective, we are you know we're obviously been very protective about our culture. We we believe in people. We believe in hiring people who want to have a career, not a job. Uh, and but uh, and also I guess it's about selling that uh, collective sense of of purpose, you know, that mission. Um, and so I think that it's it's very much the case that the the right people are out there um, who are going to work hard and 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 try to deliver for the business because they want to see it grow and scale. Um, but it, it's possible that as a wider public, 
within within I, w- I wouldn't single out the UK I think within the wider Western world since Covid um, it, it's amazing what putting people on furlough at 80% of their wages and, and let them watch Netflix all day uh, or go and have barbecues in their garden uh, for you know 18 months will do for uh for for attitudes to work uh and it's it's maybe not that surprising that there's now call you know there's now calls for four-day working weeks there's now calls for universal basic income um because i think that people have got got quite used to not actually having to do work but but getting paid for it um i look at the working from home culture and practice and obviously you're you're, you're I imagine you're at home at the moment I'm I'm also working from home today as well um but this idea of working from home even if people go back to the office four days a week it, in my mind it's almost like Friday is barely a working day these days um and so yeah we have um we, we have some challenges I think at the moment around work but there's nothing like a good recession there's no such thing as a good recession of course but there's nothing like a recession to uh, to change people's attitudes. And I think also um, the shift, uh, I think we'll see over the next 18 months, two years, the number of jobs that will start to get taken away by AI. Um, and of course, these jobs will be replaced in, in some way, shape or form. But it, it's going to make a difference, isn't it, to, um, you know, the job that you thought you could have, you might not be able to have it. And it might take some time for the new jobs to filter through. Uh, so I think we're going to see some, we'll see some unemployment at some point, uh, or increases in unemployment at some point in the in the coming six to 12 months. And I think as soon as that starts to feed through, attitudes by workers as a, as a broader whole will clearly change. You know, we've we've had 13 years of things being pretty rosy, and that doesn't half feed into workers feeling quite relaxed and maybe not as a, again as a collective whole. I think maybe they don't need feel that they need to work as hard or be as committed. But I think that 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 can very quickly change, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see that pretty soon. Yeah, I. I... Um, I think it's a much bigger picture with this stuff because I'm going to say stuff that it comes a huge part of all of this is down to parenting and discipline. Mm. Okay. I believe the values instilled in us from a young age. Yeah, I know social media's come into it, it's twisted their brains and all our brains are getting reprogrammed and we gotta be careful with it. But on the other hand, it's great. And it's an amazing invention and it's here to stay and it's only going to get bigger. I do believe the culture at home and the working ethic of their parents, me, my parents, whatever it may be, I believe a lot of it is how you're raised. Okay. do you want to expand on that? Do you you want to give some examples? Um, So looking at people that we've had in the business looking at my own experience where my stepkids and kids are at on their journey because they're now all starting to leave home i see a pattern of if 
people are brought up in a nurturing, loving and hardworking environment. And this is nothing to do with having successful parents or there's loads of money around. It's got nothing to do with it because it's not about that. It's basically an inside job. It's actually how we feel internally. When I look at, you know, something I've started doing, I've started looking into people's backgrounds before they're hired. And when someone turns up for an interview, I'm not interested in their CV. I'm interested in them, telling them about who they are and seeing whether they're open enough to go back in their lives and go into where they come from. Just this stuff, I believe, is fundamental to where we go. And, and what would you say the you know for someone for you to hire someone what what are the qualities uh, that they need to have in terms of in terms of their background and their backstory you know what what are, what are the common themes about people's you know the early earlier lives that would would make someone a kind of green light for you to hire for me it's a little bit more subtle than that it's things like eye contact it's okay. stuff it's stuff like the behavior when they're sitting in front of me even though people are nervous anyway in an interview we don't really call them interviews they're more of a they're they're more of an informal forum you know that whole thing has changed to make people feel more comfortable um it's about being honest because most of us have got a digital identity now Mm -hmm. You could basically Google anyone, right? And really, unless they're older, there's going to be something on them. And for me, it's about honesty and it's about loyalty, but you also don't really know whether that's the case until they've started working for you. Mm -hmm. It's about values. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about values. What what are you you know what are your core values? You know the 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 ones that you you value above all else. It's to be the best version of myself. One day at a time. To be honest and practice that principle in all my affairs. So that's business and life because it's the same thing. I think you know. I think the way we live in business or the way we live our lives are basically going to be mirror images. But this honesty and this trust and this loyalty and having someone's back is fundamental. One of my weaknesses is that I give people a lot of opportunities, maybe a, a third or fourth opportunity instead of just a second opportunity. Um, I sat down with someone who was ex-Special Forces two years ago up here. I had 15 minutes with him and it completely blew my mind. And so a lot of these ex-Special Forces men and women are embedded in very large corporate entities because of their organisational processes and skills and their discipline they bring to a team. 
and we were talking about hiring and we were talking about employees and staff and he says he gives people a first opportunity and he'll correct them and if they don't get it right the second time that's it they're gone and it's having the boundaries around that it's something that I need to look at personally it's giving people too many opportunities it's okay to be fair but some people don't change right I think sometimes it's that willingness to change and attitude I mean something you know sometimes if you get something you can get something wrong more than once but you if you're getting a bit closer each time but if someone's not I think the issue is if someone's never getting gonna someone isn't willing to take on board that feedback and isn't able to get you know make those progressive steps to to improvement eventually you have to say look um I don't think this is going to work um I, I do agree with that um in, in terms of and we talked about your main challenge obviously being people uh you know on an overall basis and and it's funny because I think that's that's a really consistent theme whenever I ask people that that question around what's what's their biggest challenge in terms of the next 18 months what do you see the biggest challenges slash threats to you know to either of your businesses um political uncertainty is going to be very very interesting because the latest there can be a general election is january 24 uh january 25 yeah and there's some very interesting noises coming out of Labour and their housing policies. And they are openly going after the property sector. They, they are going out and they are courting property. They are in meetings with national and regional house builders and house building federation and all the focus groups, which is what the Tories used to do. They used to get in there first. That was their traditional hunting ground. You talk about our sector, so politics. The continual diminishing of the planning system in this country. I'll expand on that. The lack of resources, the lack of willingness to grant a planning consent on sites that clearly have merit and value are a major barrier to SME developers being able to earn a living. It's, it's actually a really serious thing. You know, I've looked at the, the petitions and all the noise going on regarding SMEs getting together and kind of uh, how far do you want to squeeze us? Because Growing up, so I was born in 1973, so teenager in the 80s, right? But, you know, working in the 90s when things were really tough at first, the lifeblood of this country are small businesses, sole traders, SMEs and entrepreneurs. That's the foundation of this country. Yeah, I mean, from my own experience, you know, we can see that the planning system is completely broken. It's a nightmare. Um, you know, we had we got planning consent for a nine unit scheme. It took us nearly three years. It's replacing an existing dwelling that's quite substantial. Um, it's you know, it's it's a right right. It's 
it's part of the settlement effectively you know it, it faces a an enormous waitrose uh brand which was brand new that the council seemed to have no issues uh, uh, um, approving yet the only way we were able to get this looked at was by effectively appealing non-determination by the uh, by the council because what's the council officer doing the, the planning officer is spending their time looking at um, small residential pdr which is basically your extension your loft conversion or they're doing the 300 unit scheme for the national house builder that's, that's strategically important in in that borough they're not looking at the S, the, the SME sites and the problem is that you know the you know, the idiot that is Michael Gove uh, with when effectively saying that the five-year housing land supply uh, rule is now just advisory uh, it's led to council after council um, effectively pausing work on their lo draft local plans uh, and essentially it's given councils essentially carte blanche to stop approving planning applications unless they absolutely have to unless it's something that will get a, a slam dunk reception with, with the with the planning inspector um and for me i mean so i i agree with you wholeheartedly uh, jerome it's pretty obvious the problems are, are going to filter through in a massive way to the to the wider economy um you're going to see you know development finance businesses like ourselves uh, like Avon say so obviously I wear multiple hats but uh, there's there's going to be fewer consents that are going to be built out that means there's going to be fewer customers for finance companies um, it, you talk about contractors and subcontractors the construction industry is already in is already in uh, recession at the moment um, we're actually seeing now def deflationary data around construction costs um so that's very telling but we're storing up trouble because we're going to end up with not enough housing so we're already short of housing we're going to see even more shortage of housing and 18 months two years from now we are going to see huge amounts of house house price inflation that will be driven by uh, by what's happening at the moment in the planning system and the problem that we've got is that and I think one of the reasons why Labour are taking housing really seriously and, I, and I'm I've never voted Labour in my life but I am incredibly tempted and I had a, a guy called Mike Reader on uh, the podcast about um, two months ago now and Mike is the going to be standing to be an MP in Northampton South which it, which essentially is a is a bit of a bellwether, and I think Mike is going to get elected the way things are going. And you know, I've spoken to Mike about housing. Mike's uh, Mike actually did a really nice thread about uh, you know Labour's housing ambitions and how they really want to back SMEs, uh, SME house builders. And the big challenge is that if you Labour are taking it seriously because they know that probably one of the single biggest things that drives up inequality is housing costs. And the fact that if we make housing costs too expensive, that 
the majority the majority of a, of a person's income the average person's income will be spent on housing costs and they won't be able to spend it in other areas areas of the economy and it would and it's the it is a huge millstone around the uk's economy the neck of the the, the uk's economy because if we because effectively if we're spending all our money on um on housing costs and the costs of financing that uh, housing, whether it is if you're a mortgage, if you've got a mortgage or if you're renting, then that's money that can't go into other areas, areas of the economy, um, like R&D, like technology. You know, you can't have a sem- you can't invest in semiconductors, for example, uh, as as a nation in the way that you'd like to, because too much of the of, of, of the money in, in, in the country is, is being spent on housing costs. So. Yeah, I know we've both been on our soapboxes, but it's such an important it's such an important piece. Um, it, what about access to land? Is that is that going to be a big challenge for you over the next 18 months? Because it's certainly from the from Chartfield, the, the strategic land business that I'm involved in, we're finding it incredibly hard to, to get any traction on conditional sites. So effectively, you know, subject to planning or options. Is, is, are you finding that increasingly difficult? So land has always been the bedrock of generational and landed gentry wealth. And the more into this we get and the more I look at ownerships and the more I look at how land really works. And the multiple family ownerships and everyone's getting old together and all these scenarios and the huge inheritance tax breaks on land as well. Right. It's um, it is it is harder to secure land. Um, I mean, we've been looking at stuff that obviously when you look at a land registry title and you look at the consideration page, you always know what you always know when it's been inherited. Right. Because mm-hmm. of the figure, basically. And even if it's in their personal name because it's it's on the book at such a a low level it doesn't matter if they're paying the capital gain on it even those sites are are becoming hard to get also what what i've come up against very recently last three months so typically i'll get calls back from landowners who will turn around and say speak to my agent because we've instructed xyz and when they say that I know I'm wasting my time. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, you know, I'm now looking at a three year plan, which is can I hit 20 sites in three years? Right. And by any means necessary, probably got the ability to fund them at some point, not, wouldn't be able to fund them all today right um and then it's probably time to get out what permanently um get out of the uk and move into a different sector staying in property but other other parts of it that i haven't identified yet you know when you look at stuff thing things like entrepreneurs relief and the huge reduction in the lifetime cap on that the increase in corporation tax, um, it's sort of reaching the point 
where you know what we'd be stupid not to question where's this going okay so so what you're saying is you're you're almost you're sort of bearish on uk plc you uh, the uk in general and, and and uk plc so okay so and, and this is let's just try to unpick that a little bit so so from a land perspective you, it's, it's what, what's the main issue is that it's it's hard to get land and then once you've it's it's hard to get the land it's hard to get the planning and then once you've made the money you're taxed into oblivion so what's the point what, what was the point anyway is is that is, is that effectively summarizing it in a succinct way yeah that's a really succinct succinct summary which means then you've got to look at what your IR okay what so, sort of uh, so, sorry Jerome we just lost you for a second do you want to say that say it again is yeah, I think so, you've got to look at do you say you've got to look at your IRR was that what you were saying yeah so looking at what margin or what coupon you're able to pay your investor yeah okay for th this is what this is really all about okay because you see it no doubt but through through Avermore I know you're more non-exec now non-operational because we had that chat recently People doing trying to raise money and do deals at sub 20%. I can't see how they're making money. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it cost, cost of finance, especially if, you, especially in a higher, higher risk sector that you're in, um, because presumably you're raising money on a more kind of un, unsecured basis, effectively. Yeah. So this all goes right back to your model and what what returns you want for your time and your risk the risk to capital which then feeds all the way back into is it possible to make money mm -hmm. and the answer is yes you can make money there may be less deals but you can make more money it's like i'll, I'll use like the cricketing analogy let's look at mark wood right okay last week maybe he'll play the next match maybe he won't but they but they they knew if they could get enough quality out of him at full tilt rather than quantity and volume it would pay off and maybe that's where we have to be in what we're doing so it's it, it's effectively quality quality mar quality and margin rather than volume essentially yeah because depending on your deal structure if it's an spv or it's a head co it's different but if you're going to trade it and you're going to trade it on with the benefit of a consent you're going to you are going to dissolve your spv you've got your court tax is it worth claiming the entrepreneur's relief on it if not you've got your own tax on it what what have you got left how mm. many deals how many deals do you have to do to have the lifestyle you think you need yeah yeah i mean it, it it's perhaps where i i you know it's curious i'm I'm curious talking to you because i it, it i i suppose i look at things in a slightly different way because i i like to create uh, i i like to create businesses or i like the idea of creating businesses that have 
longevity that you create a bit of a machine and you you create a platform effectively and a platform that that sustains itself and it sounds to me like you're 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 like right okay we're going to get in we're going to make some we're going to make some money on a few deals and you know what that's it we're going to and then we're going to we're going to sort of tear it all down and then we can start again and we'll we'll look at something else so it's a completely different way of of looking at things to how I would uh, how I would approach it because if I was in your shoes having a business that's quite similar I would be like, mm, okay, well, let's just try and turn this into a machine. You know, let's, you know, the, the ambition is ultimately to create, turn Chartfield into a regional, semi-regional house builder or a, a business that is acquired by a, a regional, semi-regional house builder and and put in place a team. That's my, that's my, that's my vision, Richard's, it's Richard's vision really, but mine and Richard's vision is a hair's vision for that business. Um, you're looking at it and taking a different approach which is right i'm actually at the end of the day i'm i'm gonna if i try and trade all of this on i don't actually make any i'm not gonna end up making any money out of it really if unless i really shoot the lights out and it's getting harder and harder to shoot the lights out so we need to go and look elsewhere is that is is that is is that a fair distinction yeah i i i you know also i think age and the quality of life you want where you want to be and you where you are in your home life I do believe has a much bigger bearing on this stuff than people let on so it's so is it is it, is it I mean I mean I, I wanted to I want to come back and touch on some of the stuff you know that, that you've gone through in your in you you know in in the sort of earlier parts of your career because a lot of it's a lot of it is quite noteworthy but one of the things that's that's very clear is that you you don't you don't stand still you know you're 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 constantly evolving you're constantly adapting you know you you seem to be someone that that's very open to change obviously you know you've been in catering hotel management then you go into a state agency a residential state agency then commercial agency then you work in a PE fund and now you're uh, at PE funds doing PDR development and now here you are doing your training and you're also doing your uh, and you're also doing the um you know strategic land stuff but it feels like you it feels like you've kind of once you've got seven eight nine ten years into something you're ready to move on and by the way that's something I actually have a lot of sympathy for you know I, I sort of get itchy feet about four or five years into a lot of things um myself um do you think this is just a part of how you are that you're that ultimately you 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 want to experience new things you want to try new things as you're saying you're you know yours and your yours and your current wife's kids are starting to leave the nest is that is that is that a part of it is is that a function of 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 how of just how you naturally approach things as well um I think a lot of it's got to do with um, how we're shaped as kids. All this stuff, it's a direct transfer of I have lived in a lot of places. Uh, which I haven't even touched upon. Um, and I think also hitting 50 a couple of weeks ago, it's been on my mind a while regarding where I want to really go 
in life because you can only live in, in one place and drive one car, right? Mm-hmm. And wear one watch and sleep in one bed and all that sort of stuff. Maybe it's more of, yeah, I, I understand your point. You're actually the first person that's ever pointed that out. So I thank you for that, actually, because that is the theme, right? Yeah. That, that, that um, you, 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 you do seem to evolve. But, you know, we obviously didn't talk about your, you know, you, we didn't talk about your kind of pre, you know, your, your childhood and your growing up stuff. But, you know, where, what was, you know, were, were there any, you know, you talk, you just mentioned, look, there were some places that you that you lived that you never mentioned. So was it growing up that there were quite a lot of, uh, was quite a lot of movement in your life as well? Yeah, I, you know, I, I was at boarding school from the age of eight um till I was 17 no siblings uh my father passed away six months ago my mother's still alive uh, much o- yeah thank you M- much older parents as well with a different outlook on life and going away to boarding school at a young age particularly a long way from home shapes who you become Mm-hmm. And um, when I got back from that period, that nine year stint, as I call it, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I hadn't been able to build relationships, you know, because at the end of the day, boarding school, your parents are paying someone to basically care for you. Mm. Right. I think I think it makes it more difficult in my in my opinion, and I, I've got a lot, I actually got a lot of similarities with yourself, Jerome, although I, I didn't go to boarding school quite so, quite so young, but I think you do struggle to, to put down roots or feel rooted anywhere. If you've, you know, if, if from such a young age, you're, you're away from, uh, you're, you're away from home for, uh, for effectively most of the time. Um, and I suppose it, it, it's not that surprising that you've been, you, you've become a bit of a wanderer as a consequence. Yeah, so um, that was Bristol. I was born in London. I'm a Londoner. Uh, Bought a share in a nightclub in Cape Town in my early 20s when I had the estate agency up and running. Don't really know what that was all about, but I don't have any regrets. Spent two years going backwards and forwards for the summer seasons in Cape Town. Uh, Very punishing, very long hours very dangerous out there in that industry Mm. Um, and yeah I you know I'm I'm sort of married to uh, an amazing woman that's lived in the same area her whole life and the kids have gone to the same school and her parent you know her mother went to the same school and they all know each other and they all bump into each other in the supermarkets right never been able to relate to that you know, don't not really bothered where I live as long as I'm happy. Have, have you have you embraced? It sounds like your wife is has really is is really rooted in the communities that she's in. If if you get, have you had the conversation about if you get itchy feet and you want to go and live somewhere different? Would she would she be open to joining you, or is is that a, is is that still a work in progress? Yeah, it's an interesting question and a huge breakthrough has been made very recently as she starts to look at the bigger picture in her life 
and that her kids are leaving home. So the answer was, it was causing a lot of angst. It's now moved through that to the point where we're now actively discussing where we go from here. Yeah, okay. Uh, I suppose I suppose as well, if you're of a similar age to to your wife, you know, like these these milestone years, I mean, I'm, I'm 41, you know, so I was 40 last year, but I think these milestone years, uh they they do put things into sharp focus don't they around uh around around the things that you do i was i was watching uh, watching i was listening to a, a podcast last week i think it was the diary of ceo and one of the chaps on there he was talking about that, that if you look at the if you look at the distribution of ages of people who do marathons it's it's disproportionate that they're all in the, the they all they, they all end in nine so 29 39 49 you know so on and so forth um and it's like there's sort of um there's that sort of fear uh you know fear or or, or I, I don't know i probably can't exp- i'm not i'm not explaining the um the psychology of it but i think everyone can understand it's like you, you come to these watershed moments in your life um, and you, you sort of feel like uh, you you ask yourself this question: What am I doing with my life, and what what is my purpose, and where am I going next? And I think particularly around these kind of milestones, de- decade milestones, um, you will ne- you you will naturally ask yourself those questions. And if I suppose if your wife is of a similar age, combined with kids moving home, moving out of home, um, understandably, um, it might lead to an openness to trying and exploring new things especially is that realization that you know we are we we you know time time is undefeated right so you uh you, and you only get really get one shot at it um i'd like to just i'd just like to touch on a couple of things because you, you know you seem to take um some very difficult challenging moments in your stride um 2008 interesting you know as a starting point you know you, you said you did a couple of kids um no job effectively come september october 2008 you're not you wouldn't have been in a minority there and you you know you were sort of on your own essentially on your own uh and you had to almost take a year out i mean how, how, how did you how, how did you handle that you know emotionally what kept you going? How, how did you how did you sort of see that through? I'm trying to recall that time as we're talking. Um, my first wife became unwell at that time, which was the beginning of the catalyst of what eventually happened in our marriage. And. And we had a plan all mapped out buying a house in Essex, mortgage offer, whole new life. And I do believe everything happens for a reason. I do really believe that we're right where we're supposed to be at this moment in time. And I had to devote that period to my kids because my kids needed me. Uh, Nelly, my youngest, was born in 2008, January 08. Samuel, my eldest, was four and a bit at that time. Um, 
And it's, I think, seeing the adversity in my parents' life and their marriage and their circumstances um, has given me the ability to be able to compartmentalize stuff when it happens and it's making the decision that that year let's pause let's figure things out my kids need me and that's all there really was to it you know I'm not not playing it down or anything I've just I you know had that ability I still have it today to be able to move on from stuff it it's a it's a very it's a, it's a very helpful quality um because I, I then look at 2013 you got divorced you took your kids with you up to Edinburgh away from London Essex or where, wherever you were at the time it's a big move it's you know it's a different country different culture um I mean it's still part of the UK but you know uh, as someone with Scottish family every time I go up there it's not the same it's definitely not I mean London and Manchester is different but you know this is another level um I mean and you're then working you know in a private equity company as a day job clearly your ability to compartmentalize was uh, was was tested to the full then but how did you juggle being a single dad and also um and also effectively be a success you know be successful in your career at the same time because that so, that to me sounds very very challenging yeah it was challenging but fortunately it was possible to get a live-in au pair i wasn't even live, living in edinburgh i was living in a village uh in fife over the uh, bridge uh Octotool, a village where there were more water buffalo cows and sheep than humans <laughs> yeah um some of them had never been to London and they had definitely um, not met a uh, Jew before either. <laughs> okay. And um, got a living au pair, went through two or three living au pairs. The kids attended a village primary school with 40 kids in it where there's only two classes. And that was really, that was like a seminal moment in all of our lives because it's basically shaped who the kids are today. And I was determined not to let anything get in my way. And, and, and how, uh, you know, and how, how was the relationship with your kids during this time? You know, were you able to be fully present for them uh, as much as you wanted to be? Or, or did you have to, or did you ultimately have to make sacrifices to enable you, you know, the the things in your, you know, your career to to go in the direction it needed to go in? Yeah, I, I, um, I always made sure that we had breakfast together and that I read to them at bedtime. And yeah, there was there was a bit of travelling involved, you know, looking at deals and stuff, reasonably long hours. But it's not a London work culture like Manchester isn't. It's different. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, you know, it's kind of you basically get in at nine and if you go at five, then you go at five. Right. Um, that's not necessarily my culture, but 
we have to make sacrifices at some point and it was a really really fantastic time and and i guess so you moved and, and obviously met met your current wife and 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 i guess you you then ended up with this huge extended family as a consequence so you've six kids so it's uh i guess holidays you know high holidays and that kind of thing that's a uh, you know family get togethers that must be quite energetic shall we say quite noisy so, uh, quite yeah um so four four kids and the two of us so six for a quite a while here it's not six anymore my son's gone back to london my stepdaughter's at uni my daughter's going back after a gcse's my stepson will be the only one left here this time next year right so blended family is challenging very very difficult because effectively each set of kids have been brought up in a different way mm. and yeah it's out of everything i've ever done it's much harder than getting planning permission on a greenfield site outside a development boundary and they've got a five-year housing supply yeah <laughs> yeah well i i can I, I i i certainly can understand that reference and um although it's not something i've had to go through myself um you know lots of people around me are experiencing that and uh yeah it's it it it's definitely looks looks very challenging so uh from from my vantage point jerome it sounds like you and your wife have done a, a very good job to keep things as harmonious as as they as they clearly have been um you talked about your age you said that you're 50 um and, you know you you look good for your age uh i'm sure you you hear that quite often uh what are you you know what are the habits and practices you're engaged in that you know enable you to to you know a to have the energy that you do but uh, but also essentially to say that you're looking as as well as you do as well um so the first thing i will say is that i don't drink alcohol haven't done for nearly four years i meditate every morning and have done for years uh, without fail every morning. Um, I write a gratitude list every morning of 10 things I'm grateful for without fail, no matter where I am in the world, a hotel room at home, wherever. Um, I, one of the great things about living up north is that you've got these incredible walks and countryside on your doorstep. You know, I, I live I live in Lancashire, got heavily into walking, 15 minutes from Ramsbottom and Holcombe Moor, you know, stunning. Um, I go to the gym. I like doing 5Ks and 10Ks. Um, we eat very healthily. I like cooking. I do all the cooking. I'm really into cooking, which kind of, stems from the whole catering college thing mm -hmm. Year, years ago um i'm a tom kerry super fan my wife got him to sign his latest cookbook as one as uh, as one of my 50th birthday presents nice so as i've got older 
and you see people getting ill around you and people having heart attacks and bypasses and strokes and terminal illnesses and hip replacements and knee replacements and what it does is it crystallizes that we have to look after ourselves mm. there's no no question no question around that um in terms of in terms of the meditation is are there any using any apps for that or is that something you just developed uh the skill for on your own so um so insight timer is the app i use um i don't pay for it because there's hundreds of thousands of free meditations in their library that's what i've been using for coming up for four years um i i i do it to get a a better perspective on that day mm -hmm. I'm never going to become a Zen Buddhist monk. Okay. But it's been invaluable in dealing with stuff, just switching off. You know, there's, there is a huge misconception with meditating. And I believe the misconception is that after a while, your brain will slow down and you won't have all these thoughts going on all of the time. Mm -hmm. That still happens, but this is a way of slowing it down over a period of time, maybe the hour, that minute, that day. Yeah. Well, um, some, some, as, as somebody who meditates himself, themselves, myself, some themselves, I don't know I'm talking in the third person. Um, the my understanding of it is that you know just just taking one conscious breath is is a form of meditation it's just about being it's about being mindful um i suppose that, that and there's just there's lots of different ways of meditating isn't there um i i, I myself i like the car map uh i've got into the habit of actually listening to the daily j with jay shetty uh uh jay was uh was a monk uh i think a hindu monk uh for a number of years um and he's got quite a nice nice way about him uh and uh it's a nice way to start the day off uh, i think i'm on a streak of about 150 days now straight of meditation even if that's only just a couple of minutes uh of, of breathing but um yeah i i guess you you probably uh would smash that jerome you're probably uh well ahead of me on the street front uh but that all sounds good um just starting to wrap up now, I just want to talk about uh, people who have been, you know, I guess who, who've been inspiring influences in your life. Um, are, are there any, you know, are there any people or events that have, you know, kind of inspired you to be where you are today? Um, my wife is probably the most inspiring person I know because of the adversity that she has been through until she met me and we fortunate fortunately came into each other's lives um she was a senior person at a broadcasting organization her mum fell ill with breast cancer and her first marriage collapsed overnight and she had to sacrifice her career to bring up her kids and look after her mother um events that have shaped my life 
I like to look at it that all of the life experiences I've had, which have been quite numerous, some good, some not so good, have created the sum of many parts. Um, I don't really have a family member that I see as an inspirational character. Um, business leaders, yeah, there's people I'm in business with now that I have a huge amount of respect for that have known me through all my stuff that's gone on since I was much younger that I find inspirational that they're still starving hungry and they're much older than me. When you say starving hungry, you mean that that's a metaphorical exp expression, right? That yeah. they're still they're still hungry to do more, hungry for the business, right? Yeah, because I think that's something that is within us if you're that way inclined. Mm. Um. Okay. Uh. That, that I. I think. Uh, and and do, are there any any names? Anyone? Anyone you'd like to name on on the business front who's sort of inspirational or someone that you look up to? Um. No. No. The, okay. They, you don't like to single they, them out. No, I, I think it's important to protect people's anonymity. Okay. Understood. Uh. That, that's that's fair. Um. And I guess just to wrap up. You know, in I suppose in 90 seconds or less, what would you say to your 17 year old self when you left boarding school? You know, what would you say to them knowing what you do now? To take take my time making decisions. At that age, you're in a hurry. And it's what I'm really trying to impress upon all of the kids. Just pause for a minute before you say it, before you do it, before you make that decision, there is plenty of time. I think that's right. Uh, and I probably say exactly the same thing to myself, and I've said it before on in, on other podcasts and on here as well. If it, I, I was in too much of a hurry and I didn't get to enjoy, you know, the best times of my life in my 20s or what would have been, because I was too focused on trying to get to the next step rather than actually experiencing what was there. Because there's always, you know, we'll run out of time eventually, but there's always, uh, but there's there's more time than you realise um, and you've actually got to enjoy the experience. Um, Jerome, thank you. Uh, it's been It's been an honour and a privilege to spend the last hour and a half in your company. Um, and uh, I hope we can have you back on again sometime soon. Um, if someone wants to reach out to you, where can they find you? How can they find you? You mentioned social media, being someone who's proficient in that space. Uh, what's the best way to get hold of you? So they can drop me a DM on Instagram, which is at Property Planning Game. That's the same handle on Facebook. I believe we've got a page on TikTok and I've been told by the kids I've got to get on that. So that'll be property planning game as well. LinkedIn is my own name, Jerome Royth. Um, we're relaunching the property planning game training program maybe this week or next. And my phone number and email address is on that website. Do you want to just give the, the full website address for, for people if they're, if, they're, if they're listening and they want to write it down? Yeah, www.propertyplanninggame.co.uk. Or if you want to talk about land and you're a landowner or you've got something to discuss on the land side, it's www.sensitivedevelopments, 
www.ipsos.co.uk. Right. Well, Jerome, uh, thank you very much for your time. Uh, as I said, it's been great to spend the last 90 minutes with you and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Nice one. Thanks, Michael. Have a good day. Thanks for having me on. A big thank you goes out to the official sponsor of the Property Funder podcast, Avonmore Capital, a property bridging and development lender located here in London. They, as much as me, understand the importance of somebody's story and how they got to where they are. Lending on projects from just £250,000 across the entirety of England and Wales, their understanding of all development backgrounds and can help support you at any stage in a scheme, even if you just have one brick down. Visit www.avonmorecapital.com to find out more about how they can help you in your development journey. Thanks so much for tuning into this podcast. I hope you can go away having learned something new and even picked up some new things to apply to your day today. Catch us in the next episode for another interesting story.